Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Theological Equipping class. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, we have been talking about anthropology, that is, the doctrine of man. We've been learning uh, about the essential nature of man. And one of the things that we've been talking about recently is this idea that man was not created as some sort of non-sexual or asexual uh, being, but uh, in fact we were created male and female. We talked about uh, the implications for that uh, in regards to uh, the, the, the fundamental roles and, uh, and responsibilities of men and women, that men and women are fundamentally equal, equal but functionally distinct. Uh, we talked about divorce and remarriage. We talked about marriage. And then this week what we want to talk about uh, is the topic of homosexuality. Next week, uh, Tim will be with us, and he will be talking about transgenderism. And uh, so even as we begin, I want to talk about this word, homosexuality. Uh, it's this word that if you are familiar with the uh, uh, sort of overarching culture of the LGBTI uh, sort of conversation, then you know uh, perhaps that this word is a word that more and more is not in vogue. Uh, it's a word that uh, if you were to, to use the word homosexual or homosexuality in general, it would be seen as someone who is out of touch with the conversation. The conversation has moved beyond uh, what you are aware of. So it's kind of like if, uh, if you have a friend who asks you to tape a program for them, uh, or uh, you have a friend who calls a flight attendant a stewardess, uh, or someone who tells you to go visit their MySpace page, uh, you know that, that uh, in some sense the conversation has already moved past them. Uh, for a lot within, uh, within the uh, LGBTI community, uh, there is this sense in which that is what homosexuality has done. And so, in fact, I read uh, an article on the uh, GLAAD website, the, the Gay and Lesbian uh, Alliance for Anti-Defamation, uh, that said that the word homosexual or homosexuality is an, an antiquated word, and it's a word that's actually offensive. Uh, interestingly enough, I then read another article on another website uh, by someone who actually identified as a homosexual, and they said that they were actually offended uh, by the fact that the, the GLAAD website called this word offended, uh, offensive. So there's really uh, no way uh, to win the conversation. But for now, uh, we recognize the, the deficiency. We recognize that some people uh, might be offended by the term, but I think there's really no better term uh, at this juncture that has kind of the, the history of usage within uh, the English language, uh, language the, the popular support of it. Uh, it still seems to be the clearest word. Uh, it still seems to be a word that is uh, in the majority of our English translations of the Scripture, uh, and so we use it even though we recognize that some of the uh, sort of subsets of culture uh, have uh, uh, some strong opinions on it. And so what I want to do this morning is I really want to, uh, to deal with uh, two issues, and uh, we'll spend the bulk of our time really dealing uh, with the first, but I want to also spend a little bit of time uh, on the second one. The first issue is this. I, I want to know, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? What does the Bible actually teach when it comes to the topic of homosexuality. And then the second thing that we want to do from that, as an implication of that, as a consequence of what the Bible actually says about homosexuality, I want to ask this question. How then should we say what the Bible says about homosexuality? In other words, how do we speak this truth 
But how do we do so in love? How do we speak the truth in love? And, and, and I think this is an area where the evangelical church has failed, uh, has dropped the ball to a large degree over the years, that we have not only failed to speak the truth, but also failed to speak uh, in love. And so uh, I think that uh, we're all aware of areas where the church has failed to exercise Love. We talked about it in the sermon a little bit uh, last week, and so I want to begin right there, uh, recognizing that uh, in a room this size, there very well could be people who have this particular struggle, who struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, and so I want to just speak to you for a second and say, you, you're not a special class of Christian. You're not extra dirty. You don't have an asterisk next to your name. And there is absolutely hope. You are not your desires. That's one of the things that we'll talk about this morning. You're not defined by your desires. You don't have to identify with your uh, desires. And so if you do struggle with this, we would absolutely love to walk with you through this and help you see grace and love, even in this hard word that we're going to speak this morning. And so let me encourage you to stick around afterwards to talk to us send us an email, whatever it might be. We would love to uh, support you and encourage you uh, and help shepherd you uh, not only uh, toward love, but also toward the truth, which is loving. One of the things that the church has done, in addition to failing to speak in a way that is gracious and loving and kind, uh, in addition to this, I think the church also has, uh, by and large, failed uh, to speak the truth. Uh, this is certainly true today. We see that uh, with myriad so-called preachers and teachers saying that homosexual behavior is a perfectly acceptable Christian lifestyle, uh, even though historically uh, the church uh, has not landed in that position. Uh, historically, the church, whether it's uh, uh, early Judaism or the early church or Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or every single denomination within Protestantism, every one of them has been universally aligned in saying that this is uh, not compatible with Christian faith and, uh, and practice. Uh, and, and yet, today we live in a, in a world where there are a number of voices that are capitulating uh, on this topic and not only that, not only is there this contemporary uh, lack of truth in the conversation when it comes to homosexuality, but I think even historically uh, that has uh, been the case. Even though the church has historically been aligned on this issue, the church has not historically taught very well on, uh, on this particular topic. We haven't done a good job of teaching our people what does the Bible actually say when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Instead, we've just relied on one or two passages or a couple of platitudes or pithy statements or whatever uh, it might be. It kind of re reminds me, when I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks, and because of this uh, mix-up in our paperwork, they failed to send me to barista training. And, uh, and so, literally, I just was learning on the job. I was just learning how to make drinks behind the counter, but that also meant that I really only learned to make the drinks that customers actually ordered. So I didn't actually learn how to make a number of drinks that were actually offered at Starbucks because nobody actually ordered 
those drinks. And so I made a lot of drinks that uh, you wouldn't think anybody would order. Like I remember there was a, a lady who would always come in and she would order a particular uh, beverage and she wanted it at a particular degree. She wanted a certain number of Splendas put in there, a certain number of, of, of pumps of sugar-free vanilla put in there. Uh, but there were a number of drinks that Starbucks officially offered that I never got an opportunity uh, to make, and so therefore I never even learned how to make because nobody would order it. And so I, I remember I'd worked there for about six months, uh, and someone came in and they ordered a French press, and I had no idea uh, what a French press was because no one had ever ordered it uh, before. I think that's similar to a lot of our experiences growing up in the church. A lot of us grew up in the church and, uh, and yet we've never really had an extensive, exhaustive, comprehensive overview on the topic of homosexuality. We've never really heard an in-depth teaching on the subject. For decades, the broader evangelical church has just kind of leaned into the fact that our larger culture agreed on the topic of homosexuality. Uh, and, and by the time that we realized that was no longer the case, where no longer is, uh, are the convictions of the church shared by the convictions of secular culture, by the time that we learned that, it was, uh, it was as if we were already behind uh, the wave. And even for those churches that did teach on it, often they would set themselves up by uh, kind of uncritically appealing merely to Leviticus while breaking dozens of other mosaic prescriptions. But, I mean, just look around this room. In this room, there, there are none who are properly dressed according to the mosaic regulations. Some of you had shellfish for dinner. Some of you had bacon for breakfast. Some of you have tattoos. There's people who worked yesterday. I'm doubtful that any of us offered sacrifices this morning, etc., uh, so I wouldn't expect an unbeliever or an immature believer to understand the complexities of the differences between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. To them, it just seems like we're being hypocritical when we appeal to uh, Leviticus and yet leave out all of the rest of the regulations. By the way, we talked on that uh, a few um, semesters ago in theological equippings. So let me encourage you to go back and listen to that audio on uh, how Christians are to relate to the Mosaic Law today. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, in our section. So what we want to do this morning is, uh, is really frame the conversation like this. I want, to, I want to walk through the context of the Old Testament. I want to walk through the context of the Greco-Roman culture. I want to walk through the New Testament text itself. Uh, in other words, kind of gathering sort of the kindling for what the Bible says on the topic of homosexuality. And then I want to spend the bulk of our time really dealing with some of the common cultural objections to this biblical teaching. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28 is where we will begin. This is a fundamental, foundational verse for us understanding not just homosexuality, but sexuality in general. It says here, again, Genesis 1, 27 through 28, So God created man in His own image, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So it's here, it says here that man was originally created male and female. Again, we're not created as these asexual beings 
sort of ethereal and amorphous, that we're created as male and female. And that maleness and that femaleness corresponds to the mission that we have been given, which is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, which can only happen if we have this correspondingness, if we have male and female who are fit together. We see this language of being fit together in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 23 through 24, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is immediately after the Lord says that I will make a helper that is fit for the man, a helper that is fit for or corresponding to uh, the man not just emotionally and relationally, but even physically, as men and women were created to fit together. By the way, this is what Jesus constantly goes back to when He's asked about sexuality and marriage. If you want to know Jesus' overarching uh, understanding, His overarching theology of sexuality, this is where He goes back to over and over again is Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 24 uh, in particular. Moving on from here, from a broad sort of overview of kind of the foundation of sexuality within the Old Testament Scriptures, we begin to see some specific references uh, to the topic of homosexuality. And we'll begin uh, in the book of Genesis with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see a similar uh, account that uh, occurs in uh, Gibeah in Judges 19. Now, you might have heard before some objections that uh, people would say, well, when you're reading the prophets, when the prophets talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, they don't talk about homosexuality. They don't talk about sexual perversion or anything like that. The prophets say that Sodom was judged for exploitation and injustice and greed and these sorts of things. And in response, I would say, absolutely, that's a part of the judgment against Sodom. One of the primary virtues in the ancient world was hospitality, and we certainly see inhospitality and injustice in Sodom, but that's not all that's going on. Uh, consider what the, the book of Jude in the New Testament says uh, about this in verse 7 of Jude, which doesn't have chapters, it's just one chapter. Jude 7 says this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. And so although the prophets will help us to see that it's not only homosexuality that's going on in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that uh, homosexuality is absolutely a part of it. Uh, and so we make way too much, uh, we say way too much if we make Sodom and Gomorrah complete, completely about homosexuality and we make far too little of it if we, if we completely divorce the judgment uh, against those cities from homosexuality. The next place that we encounter this explicitly is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That word there, an abomination, is a term for anything that is seen to be offensive to God, which includes sort of ritualistic and ceremonious uncleanliness. So then the question becomes, are these just like eating shellfish or bacon or those sorts of things? And we'll deal with that objection uh, in, uh, in just a little bit. But uh, here's the beginning of what you see 
You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, this is clarified for us in Leviticus 20, verse 13. So just two chapters later, in Leviticus 20, 13, it says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. There's that word again. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So I want you to notice here is look at the punishment. The punishment here, they shall surely be put to death. This is a capital uh, offense. This is of the first order of offenses uh, within the Mosaic regulations, which are generally different from cultic regulations like purity laws. You would be unclean. You would be uh, ritualistically or ceremoniously unclean if you were to eat unclean food, but that wasn't a capital offense. So that's at least one difference that we see between this text here and what it says of homosexuality versus some of the other mosaic restrictions like what you could eat or what you could wear uh, or those sorts of things. So this is really it. This is the Old Testament uh, context, at least as it uh, relates to explicit uh, testimony regarding homosexuality. There's no ambiguity regarding the topic. You see here that sexuality in general should be in accordance with, uh, with correspondedness. That man, we talked about this in our sermon last week, that man uh, is made uh, to uh, be united to woman. That, that sexuality is a picture of worship. As in our worship, we were created uh, to be joined to our Creator. We were created to be joined to something that is both like us and unlike us. So as men, we were created to be united to women who are both like us and unlike us. And that homosexuality is a picture of this tragic exchange uh, whereby man says, forget that which is unlike me, I want that which is like me. That's what homosexuality says. Forget that which is unlike me, woman, I'll take that which is like me, man which is a picture of mankind's tragic exchange in idolatry, whereby man says, forget, forget that which is unlike me, that is the creator. I want that which is just like me. I want to worship and serve creation. I want to worship and serve another creature. That's what's going on here. We see that there is this, uh, anytime that there is an, an inversion in our worship, instead of worshiping the Creator, we worship creation, that that is demonstrated physically, that is uh, depicted for us uh, spiritually by there being this perversion of sexuality because sexuality is intended as a picture of our worship. Again, we, we talked about that as we walk through uh, Romans chapter 1 uh, in our sermon series, so let me encourage you to go back and listen uh, to that. But that's the Old Testament context. We move on from there. And you might question, you might have this question, what was uh, the sort of surrounding cultural understanding of homosexuality? We've seen the Jewish understanding of homosexuality because it's embedded there within the Mosaic regulations, within the uh, context of the Old Testament. But what is the surrounding culture? What do they think of homosexuality? And so the response is, well, it's really a hodgepodge uh, sort of uh, different perspectives. Asking what did Greeks or Romans think of homosexuality is kind of like asking today, what do Americans think of homosexuality? So imagine you're overseas, you're ministering in Africa, and someone were to ask you, what do Americans think of homosexuality? Think about the complexity 
uh, by which you would answer that question because it really depends. Uh, Likewise, it depends when you're talking about Greco-Roman culture. The Greeks were different from the Romans in different time periods. Both the Greeks and the Romans had different perspectives. Uh, And so what we want to look at is really when it comes to Rome, uh, Roman culture around the first uh, century. And so just a few principles uh, again, it, it, the, the views on homosexuality were really diverse uh, within uh, any time period, uh, as it tends to be within any culture. But uh, in general, we find uh, the following principles to be true, that it was generally accepted uh, to engage in homosexual activities with someone of a lower state. And so if you were a male citizen, for example, that it was generally accepted for you to engage in homosexual activity with a slave, with a child, with a prostitute, someone of a a lower state uh, of you. In fact, various uh, myths uh, and uh, and emperors were engaged in pederasty. And so Zeus in uh, in, in, uh, mythology uh, was engaged in uh, in homosexual rape, uh, as was uh, Nero. Uh, as the emperor. So you could generally engage in homosexual activities with someone who is of a lower estate uh, of you than you, but homosexual behavior between two adult citizens was technically illegal. And so you could not engage in homosexual activity with someone who was on the same level, the same social strata uh, as you might be. In addition to that, it was considered offensive to be the submissive partner, so not to be too uh, gratuitous or too explicit because there are children uh, in the room, but I think you can uh, kind of understand what I'm saying when I talk about the submissive party uh, or partner within a homosexual uh, activity. And it was considered offensive to be the uh, submissive party, which will be really interesting whenever we get to Paul because we see that he addresses not just uh, the uh, submissive party, but also the active party. He doesn't just address the passive party, uh, but also the active party, and says both alike are offensive. Unlike uh, Roman culture, he actually critiques Roman culture here and says both alike uh, are offensive uh, to the Lord. And really at the root, at the root of this, uh, all of the principles as it relates to Roman culture as they viewed homosexuality was this desire to maintain a distinction between the two genders. There was this desire to maintain the distinction between uh, the two genders, which is really interesting because within Roman culture, unless you were the emperor, in which case you could uh, have some sort of mock marriage or something like that, in general, gay marriage within the Roman Empire was uh, illegal. And the reason was because it made a man into a woman. But pedophilia, for example, was perfectly acceptable, which is interesting because it's the exact opposite of contemporary uh, American culture. But again, this is kind of the hodgepodge of Greco-Roman culture uh, into which uh, the New Testament is going to be uh, written. So let's see what the New Testament has to to say about this particular topic. We'll begin in Romans 1, 26 through 27, which we preached through uh, last week. Romans 1, 26 through 27, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we talked about this last week. Why? Why does Paul mention homosexuality here? It's not because it's his personal soapbox. In fact, in 13 letters, he only mentions it three times. So that's not it. It's not because he thinks it's the, the most egregious of all sins or anything like that. It's because it is a picture of the tragic exchange he's just talked about in Romans chapter 1. That we were created to be joined to something unlike us in worship. And that sexuality is a picture of that. Marriage is a picture of that. God marries Israel. Jesus marries His church. Marriage and sexuality are intended to depict this relationship uh, that we see on a cosmic level, on a spiritual level of, uh, of man relating to God. And so a perversion or an inversion in that worship leads to a perversion in our sexuality that like was made to be joined to that which is unlike it. And yet in both homosexuality and in idolatry, like is joined with like. And what does he say about homosexuality? Well, he says that homosexual passions and behavior here in this passage, he uses these words that it's dishonorable, it's unnatural, it's shameless, and he calls it an error. So that's Romans chapter 1. The next place that we encounter this 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now, your translation might just have uh, the word homosexuals there and not, might not have reference to, uh, to the effeminate, some of the more modern translations. The reason is because uh, the word that's translated uh, effeminate here uh, is malakos. It's a word that generally refers to the uh, passive, the submissive party within a homosexual union, uh, whereas the word for homosexuals here is arsenikoites. Uh, you see the, the word coitus there, arsenikoites, uh, and it's used more generally for the active party within the homosexual relationship. So again, you see here Paul not merely blending in with the Roman culture around him, uh, but actually giving a strong critique to it. It's not merely the passive party who is an offense, uh, but the active party is actually doing something offensive uh, as well. So you have here the, the reference to the effeminate and to uh, homosexuals here. What's really interesting is if you were to take this passage and you were to line it up next to uh, Leviticus chapter 20 that we talked through earlier, Leviticus chapter 20, uh, which has uh, these words in the, uh, the Septuagint. Anybody remember what the Septuagint is? Yeah, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 20, when it's talking about a male lying with another uh, male, a man lying with another man, it uses uh, this word in the Greek. It says, arsenos koitain, arsenos koitain, which is uh, the derivation of this word here in 1 Corinthians 6, arsenikoites, uh, that's translated as homosexuals. Again, both the uh, passive and the active party uh, are criticized here. 
Not only is there criticism, there's also this message of grace. It says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. In other words, this is not some sort of scarlet badge that forever defines you. You're not your desires. You're not forever enslaved to this any more than someone who has a propensity toward adultery or someone who has a propensity towards pornography is forever enslaved to those desires. There is grace in the gospel. The next place that we see this, the last place that we see this uh, explicitly mentioned within the Old Test or within the New Testament. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, which uh, says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been trusted. So you see here another one of these catalogs of sins like we talked about in our sermon last week, this catalog of vices, catalog of sins, which is really interesting because the two places we've just seen, three if you include Romans 1, these three places that list out homosexuality do so within a list of other behaviors. Again, it's not just this uh, sort of uh, asterisk. It's not this thing that Paul is uh, attempting to single out as being the most egregious or anything uh, like that, but it is something that is listed out as an example here of lawlessness and rebellion, of ungodliness and sin and unholiness and profanity. That's the language that 1 Timothy chapter 1 uses of these sorts of activities. Not just homosexuality, but also not accepting homosexuality. Immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So in light of these passages, you look at all of these passages within the context of the New Testament, and you see here very clearly that homosexual behavior is sin. It's sin and thus incompatible with our holiness, with our call to be people who are marked by holiness. We see in light of this that as with any sin, those who unrepentantly pursue homosexuality, according to the language of 1 Corinthians, have no portion in the kingdom. They will not inherit the kingdom and thus have no portion in the gospel because the gospel is the message of the kingdom as we talk about all the time here at Parkway. So as with any sin, those who unrepentantly pursue homosexuality have no portion in the kingdom and thus no portion in the gospel. But we also see this last thing. As with any sin, any who repent of homosexuality will be justified and sanctified. Such were some of you, Paul writes, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So that's what the Bible says about homosexuality. So that being the case, what are the objections? What are the objections to this? What do others do with this? Why is there this uproar within the church? Why is there this division uh, within the church, especially the Western or the American church right now, over the issue of homosexuality and whether or not it's uh, compatible uh, with Christianity there's really two lines of, of uh, objections. The first one are those who reject the Bible. 
They say that's just Paul's opinion or the Bible's not inspired. It's just another book. It's just a book of wisdom. Uh, it fits within that culture, but uh, we've kind of moved beyond that. And that's less an objection on homosexuality in particular and more about the Bible in general. So let me encourage you, if, if you're uh, interacting with that objection or you yourself have that objection, let me encourage you to uh, listen to our teachings on authority and uh, the inerrancy of the Bible from our Bibliology series, which we did uh, a while back. But the second line of objection is the one that I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about this morning. Uh, that is those who uh, would not reject the Bible's authority, uh, or at least uh, would not think that they're doing so, and so they kind of appeal to other lines uh, of defenses. And, uh, and so what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time talking about some of those objections uh, these, uh, again, are typically coming from people who profess uh, to, to say this is not just Paul's opinion, uh, but they do something uh, with this that leads them to another conclusion other than the uh, incompatibility of homosexual behavior uh, with uh, Christianity. So let's look at some of those objections. The first objection, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, so we shouldn't either. I once uh, saw a, a booklet on homosexuality that on the cover, it asked this question, a very uh, kind of compelling uh, question. It says, what did Jesus teach about homosexuality? And then you open it up. Anybody know what the first page says? Nothing. It's absolutely blank, which has a very strong rhetorical effect. But as we'll talk about, it really uh, is uh, implying far more than it actually uh, shoulds. But what do we say about this? What do we say about this objection? Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, so we shouldn't either. Well, I have two responses to it. The first one being, it wouldn't matter. So what? Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. We fundamentally do not believe that the words that are recorded of Jesus are more authoritative than the words that are recorded of Paul. We don't drive a wedge between the red letters of Scripture and the black letters of Scripture. Both red and black letters are equally authoritative. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable, not just the Scripture that's recording what Jesus were to say. If Scripture is the Word of God and if Jesus is fully God, then what the Scriptures say, Jesus says, even if not verbally during His earthly ministry, so in addition to the passages that we read earlier from the Old Testament, from Romans, from 1 Timothy, and from 1 Corinthians, there are also dozens of references to this subject which are implicitly related. And as we've talked about before, an implicit truth is just as true as an explicit truth. The Bible doesn't explicitly mention the Trinity, and yet it's the heart and foundation of our faith. An implicit truth is just as true as an explicit truth. So even if Jesus doesn't explicitly talk about homosexuality, it wouldn't really matter. But my second response is even the claim itself is not accurate. It's misleading. It's not true because Jesus actually did talk about the subject of homosexuality. Jesus actually did talk about the subject of homosexuality. Let me ask you a question. A lot of the people here, I know, I know your testimonies. A lot of you grew up in church. Some of you have been in church for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years. 
So how many times have you ever heard a sermon on incest? Or how many times have you ever heard a sermon on pedophilia or on bestiality? I'm guessing probably not often. So why not? Why not? Does the fact that such sermons rarely happen therefore communicate that these activities are acceptable to whoever your particular pastor is? If your pastor has never explicitly addressed incest or pedophilia or spent an entire uh, sermon series on that, does it mean that they somehow think that that's acceptable? Of course not. What are the things in general that you would find yourself debating about with your friends? What are the kinds of things that tend to cause an uproar on Facebook? Typically, it's what our culture disagrees on. Things like abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, degree of governmental regulation, these sorts of things. You know what's not being debated on Facebook? Whether it's okay to throw puppies off bridges. Cultures tend to spend uh, not much time debating what's already universally recognized, which is part of the reason why the church didn't spend much time building defenses when it came to the conversation on homosexuality. Really, in general, there was no debate within the church and not much debate from secular culture until recently. By the way, Jesus Himself, He never spoke about incest or rape or bestiality that we know of. Was He therefore ambivalent toward or even approving those sexual expressions as well? Can we make the same rhetorical pamphlet? What does Jesus say about rape? What does Jesus say about bestiality? What does Jesus say about incest? and therefore conclude that he was approving of it simply because he didn't explicitly use those words? Of course not. We recognize that by and large his message was to a Jewish audience, well-versed in an Old Testament which was not neutral, and it wasn't ambiguous on the issue of homosexuality. Any Jew would have known the prohibitions. There was no vagueness, no uncertainty, no subtle hints in the text of the propriety of homosexuality. So we should not expect Jesus to spend much time teaching on that which was never questioned within the culture and was already clearly articulated within the Word of God. So he never explicitly used any of the words for homosexuality that we know of. He didn't use arsenicoites. He didn't use malakos. You know what other words Jesus never used? Trinity, incarnation, hypostatic union. The concepts are there, but the words aren't. In fact, none of our English words are there. Grace, kingdom, love, faith, any of these sorts of words, none of these words were there because these are all English words, and Jesus didn't speak English, and the original manuscripts weren't in English. Now, maybe you think that's not fair. Let's just stick to the Greek, which he also didn't speak, by the way, but they're the language of the New Testament. So even in our Greek manuscripts, we don't have record of him ever explicitly using the words idol or idols or idolatry? So what does that mean? What does that imply? What are we uh, to infer on that basis? If someone were to make a pamphlet and say, what does Jesus say about idols? Nothing, so therefore go and have all the idols that you want. Of course not. Has mankind kind of outgrown idolatry? The fundamental root issue plaguing all of humanity for all of time? 
According to Romans 1, the essence of our sin, of idolatry, does the fact that Jesus never explicitly uses any of the Greek words for idol or idols or idolatry mean that mankind had outgrown it? Of course not. The fact that He doesn't use the explicit word doesn't mean that He doesn't teach on the topic. So in order to understand Jesus' views on homosexuality in particular, we need to understand the larger framework of His words on sexuality in general. Not just the word, but the topic. And we see that in a number of places. One of them, Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Uh, The phrase that's uh, rendered sexual immorality uh, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, is of the Greek word porneia. It's the word from which we get pornography. And, And so what does the term mean? We talked about it a little bit last week with divorce and remarriage. Do any of you have a junk drawer? It's kind of where you put all your knickknacks. Uh, Even though that drawer in general, by its very nature, is probably not all that organized, I imagine that there's at least some sort of thought into what should and should not go into it. And so I kind of have a junk drawer. I put certain things in it, but I don't put others. Like after I change my daughter's diaper, I never go and put the dirty diaper into the junk drawer. There's at least some level of organization I don't put food in there. I don't put refrigerated goods in there. There's at least some organization uh, to it. Well, porneia is kind of like a junk drawer. And it's at least generally organized by one principle, and that is sexual sin. So porneia, this word that's uh, rendered as sexual immorality there in Matthew Uh, is, uh, again, this is Jesus speaking, and He condemns sexual morality, He condemns porneia, and porneia is a junk drawer term for any form of extramarital sexual activity. Now, when I say extramarital there, I mean marital as defined uh, by the biblical context of one man and one woman being joined together. Go back and listen uh, a couple of weeks ago to our talk on uh, on marriage uh, to clarify that. So, porneia, or sexual morality, is a junk drawer term for any form of extramarital sexual activity. Any sexual activity outside of biblical marriage fits under this. So, it includes such things as adultery, premarital sex, bestiality, incest, and yes, even homosexuality. So, for Jesus, there are two classes of sexual activity. There's sex within marriage defined as we've seen over the last two weeks as being between man and woman. And then there's everything else. It's porneia. There's sex within marriage, which is good and glorifying. And then there's everything else, which is not, which is displeasing to the Lord, which is offensive to the Lord, which is an abomination to the Lord. You see, there is sex within heterosexual monogamous marriage, and then there's sexual immorality. And that includes all of these different subspecies, all of these other things that fit within that one junk drawer. So although Jesus doesn't use the words arsenikoites or malakos that we know of, He absolutely teaches on homosexuality because He teaches on the larger category into which homosexuality fits. He teaches on the drawer, and thus He covers everything in the drawer. 
Imagine, if you will, that some law is passed that said that you couldn't drive your car after 10 p.m. Right? There's some sort of curfew on uh, automotive, uh, automobile usage after 10 p.m. And Tim were to be out cruising at midnight, and he gets pulled over, and he tries to tell the police officer that the law doesn't apply to him because he drives a Prius and not a car. Well, that might be a bad example because he's kind of got a point. It's a Prius. But you get the point. A prohibition of a general category includes the prohibition of all the specific examples within that category. If I were to prohibit cars, I don't have to list out Civics and Camrys and Corollas and Fusions and on and on and on we could go. Likewise, when Jesus prohibits sexual morality, He doesn't have to list out adultery, premarital fornication, or homosexuality. All of those things are covered under it. So if this were myth busters, we would say that objection one is busted on multiple levels. Jesus did talk about and condemn homosexual behavior, and even if He didn't, that really wouldn't prove anything because of the overarching doctrine of Scripture. Let's look at objection two. Sexual orientation is natural, so it must be acceptable. In other words, you're born this way, which seems really inconsistent. We'll see this as we talk about transgenderism next week. It seems really inconsistent to say it matters how one is born when it comes to sexual orientation, but not when it comes to gender when we talk about transgenderism next week. But regardless of that cultural inconsistency, we as Christians need to bear in mind that the gospel in its very essence is a call to change. You know, the fact that, uh, that something is natural or instinctual or innate is not a license to act upon it. After all, sin is natural and instinctual and innate. The gospel calls us to repent of much that is natural, instinctual, and innate. The degree of a desire doesn't determine its goodness. God's Word determines its goodness. There's another line of defense within this objection uh, that says that because we see this in nature, then it must be okay. So we see certain penguins or sheep or certain primates that engage in something that's similar to homosexual behavior, so it must be okay. But that's absurd. Simply to say that you see something in nature makes it okay It's absolutely absurd. Very few animals are monogamous. So if you're going to use that line of defense, then you have to argue for polygamy. Uh, Many different animals eat their young. Some eat their sexual partners. Just because we see something in nature doesn't make it good. Monkeys throw their feces every time I go to the zoo. But if you try that, you'll have a problem. If you want to argue that what we see in nature is good, then you would have to argue that it's okay to do all of these things. By the way, you can also see how this worldview, how this objection trades on this idea that humans are basically just evolved animals rather than unique image bearers. In other words, there are certain things that we do see in nature. There are certain things that uh, are true, uh, even in a fallen world, uh, that are not true, or even in an unfallen world that are not true for us because we were created in a, in a role and, and with a responsibility that is unique as we are to bear the image of of God. So whether you're born that way or not, or whether we see this in nature or not is not the question. The question is, what does God say of this topic? The third objection that I often see is that homosexuality is not hurting anyone. Homosexuality is not hurting anyone. So if it's not hurting anyone, we shouldn't talk about it. Mind our own business. 
But this claim relies upon a really inadequate understanding of sin. You see, sin, we'll talk about this as we get to uh, homartiology, the doctrine of sin uh, in a few uh, months, but sin is not first and foremost about hurting others, but offending God. Even if homosexuality did not hurt others, it would still be wrong if it offended a holy and good God. Though sin absolutely has horizontal ramifications, it has horizontal consequences and implications. We talked about that uh, in Ephesians all the time. Even, uh, even though most sin has horizontal ramifications at its core, it's a vertical rebellion against our Creator. Rebellion against God is the essence of sin and thus must be our undergirding foundation upon which uh, we build our understanding of what's right and good. That said, the claim itself is false. Homosexuality inherently hurts others, and we need to recognize this. Homosexuality, the claim that homosexuality is not hurting anyone, is absolutely false. Homosexuality is hurting everyone that engages in homosexuality. If the Scripture is true, then to act upon homosexual urges is to invite God's judgment, as we just read. By engaging in any immoral sexual behavior, whether that's fornication or homosexuality or adultery, whatever, you're, you're not only inviting God's judgment upon yourself, but on any who is likewise engaged in that consenting activity with you. In other words, by engaging in sexual activity with your, your homosexual partner, you're contributing to their sin and thus to the consequences and effects of that sin. Thus, you are definitely and egregiously hurting not only yourself, but also another. So we see that objection doesn't stand up either. Fourth, sometimes heard it say that Christians are inconsistent for condemning homosexuality while disregarding other Levitical laws. I said this is one of the areas where I think the church needs to grow by not merely appealing to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, by you know someone getting a tattoo that says something about uh, the impropriety of homosexuality and not seeing the inconsistency and hypocrisy of that. But as we've already kind of uh, primed the pump a little bit for the discussion, the biblical prohibitions of homosexuality and other sexual sin, by the way, it's really unlike that that we see in these sort of cultic regulations. First, sexual sin is this moral rather than just a ritual matter. Second, the consequences for breaking sexual laws are far more drastic than breaking cleanliness laws. They tend to be relegated to capital offenses deserving capital punishment. And third, and this is probably most important, that these sexual laws are further cemented in the New Testament, whereas ritual aspects of the Old Testament are seen as transitory and fulfilled in Christ. So it's absolutely true that some commands of the Old Testament are applied in the New while others are not, but this is not owing to sort of a selective reading or inconsistency or hypocrisy in Christians. There is a good and reasonable theological rationale for such a distinction. We've touched on that a bit before when talking about the Mosaic Law, so you can go back uh, and listen to that audio. We talked about this, that you're no longer under the Mosaic Law. We as Christians are no longer under the Mosaic Law, but there are certain truths that were embedded in that law that are still intended to be universally true. The example that we use is uh, imagine that you're driving 
Uh, you're driving north out of the, uh, the Metroplex, headed up to uh, Oklahoma for some reason, to the wilderness. You're driving along. The speed limit is 70. You cross the border from Texas into Oklahoma. You're no longer under the jurisdiction uh, of Texas law. You're under the jurisdiction of Oklahoma law, assuming that they have any. The speed limit is still the same. You're still going 70 miles per hour, but the reason is different. You're no longer going 70 because of the authority of Texas. You're now going 70 because of the authority of Oklahoma. Likewise, there are similarities between some of the activities that are required in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, and some of the activities that are required today. But our authority has changed. We're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. So there are similarities, but there is a fundamental principle that has changed as we have been transferred uh, to another authority. So that's the reason if I'm discussing homosexuality, I typically am not going to start with Leviticus 18 or Leviticus 20 as my authority because that's confusing. I want to go straight to the New Testament in those discussions and then come back around in order to give more of a comprehensive sort of feel, I want to help people to understand how Leviticus 18 and 20 fit within the redemption uh, of God, within the redemptive history. That's objection four. Objection five is somewhat similar, that Christians are inconsistent, see that word again, for condemning homosexuality while allowing for divorce and remarriage. And in some cases, that is absolutely true. Right in some churches, uh, some churches have compromised on the subject of divorce. But here's the reality: that laxity on one sin does not give license for another sin. Uh, furthermore, many churches, such as Parkway, we try to take divorce and remarriage very seriously, which is why we spent an entire two weeks on marriage and then divorce and remarriage. That said, there are many differences between divorce and remarriage and homosexuality. Comparing those two is kind of like apples and oranges. And the, really, the, the primary difference between the two is that there is at least some type of, of exception surrounding divorce and remarriage. We talked about this, that in cases of adultery and or actual abandonment, not emotional adultery, not emotional abandonment, but actual adultery, in actual physical desertion or abandonment, there seems to be at least some indication that divorce might be permissible, whereas we have no such ambiguity or exceptions in regard to the issue of homosexuality. In other words, according to the Bible, everyone who engages in homosexual behavior is engaged in sin, but not everyone who has been divorced and or remarried is guilty of sin. So it's not simply that the church is inconsistent when dealing with the issue of divorce and remarriage uh, and having a difference in the way that they deal with homosexuality. But regardless, even if that is the case, then the proper response is not for the church to then begin to allow for homosexuality, but rather for, to repent for allowing whatever it is, whether it's divorce and remarriage, or gluttony, or pride, or whatever it might be. Uh, the goal is never to say, because you allow this one sin, you should also allow the other sin. The goal should always be to repent of both sins in those cases. Even if the church is being inconsistent, the goal would then be to grow in that particular area. The sixth objection 
that the type of homosexuality condemned in the New Testament is different somehow. The type of homosexuality that's condemned in the, the Old Testament is different somehow. That the, the homosexuality of Paul's day was exploitive, and thus Paul is not addressing the mutually reciprocated care of modern homosexual practice. Some might say that Paul is rejecting homosexual abuse. He's not rejecting homosexual behavior in general. In response, we talked about it in the sermon that Romans 1 says that men were consumed with passion for men, not just consumed with passion for boys, and that it's reciprocal, that they are burning with passion for each other. We see that in Romans chapter 1. Additionally, there's all kinds of evidence, cultural artifacts that show Uh, mutually caring homosexual relationships in antiquity. The idea that this is somehow a modern phenomenon is just simply false. Uh, We have uh, cultural artifacts showing men of roughly the same age engaging in uh, consensual sexual activities with other men of roughly the same age. So, even though we do know that some of the forms of homosexuality in antiquity were oppressive, It's simply historically inaccurate to claim that the first century was ignorant of mutually reciprocated relationships similar to those that are observed uh, in modernity. A second way that people might take this objection that the type of homosexuality condemned in the New Testament is somehow different from what we see in modern culture is that the uh, homosexuality that Paul rejected was homosexuality which was not based on orientation. In other words, Paul didn't reject homosexuality for those with a homosexual orientation, but rather he rejected homosexuality for those that are heterosexual in nature. In response, I would just say this ignores everything that we talked about in Romans 1. Orientation is not what matters, but rather God's order, God's creative order. God created man to be united to woman as a picture of worship. Anything which obscures that picture is thus displeasing to God. Plus, your orientation doesn't ultimately matter for the same reason that whether you're born this way or not doesn't. The Bible says we're all born into sin and all need a new nature as we put off the old nature. So this objection is going to really trade on this worldview that suggests that our desires form our identity. That's a profoundly unbiblical idea. If the reality or the strength of a desire is the basis of right and wrong, then sin has no meaning whatsoever. In some of my worst seasons of sin, my desire has been the strongest and the most innate and the most natural. So that brings us to the question, can you be gay and a Christian? Can you be gay and a Christian? It really depends on what you mean. Are you talking about attraction or are you talking about action? Do you mean can you be attracted to those of the same sex and still be a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely you can. But can you unrepentantly act on it? No. Just like you can't unrepentantly act on any sin. But we need to bear in mind that temptation itself isn't sin. Jesus was tempted and yet fully without sin to act on temptation as sin whether by dwelling upon the desire or acting out to satisfy it. But simply being tempted is not. So you can be attracted to someone of the same sex, but because your desires don't mark your identity, they don't determine your identity, then you're not forced to act upon it if you are in Christ. 
So whether the type of homosexuality that's condemned in the, old, the, the New Testament is different somehow than modern uh, homosexuality is really irrelevant. But even if it wasn't, uh, then we could say certainly that the, uh, it's a historically inaccurate objection. The last objection that homosexual, the words homosexual and homosexuality did not even appear in English Bibles until 1946. We talked about this a little bit before whenever we talked about bibliology. We talked about something called semantic shift. Language changes over time. There are certain words that no longer mean what they used to mean. And as language adapts, so do translations. For example, if you're reading really old translations, uh, uh, English translations of the Bible, you'll see references to unicorns, all right? Originally, that was the word that we used to express the concept of what we now know as oxen. But back then, they used to call them unicorns. But as the word unicorn takes on other connotations, such as uh, a singular horn uh, and pegasus and rainbow bright and all of that, then translations need to adapt to that. Or consider a word with connotations related to our subject today. The original King James talked about those who wear gay clothing in uh, James, but that has nothing to do with homosexuality. The word gay in this context simply means fine or expensive or luxurious clothing, but as our usage of the word gay has changed, so do the translations. And as for the why the word homosexual or homosexuality doesn't occur until 1946, the answer is really simple, that translators only use terms that have some sort of established meaning. Did you know that the word homosexual or homosexuality wasn't even coined until 1892, 1892, so roughly 50 years before it first appears in the Bible, it first appears in the English language. Up until that point, it wasn't even a word uh, that had existed, and its first appearance was actually in an English translation of a very technical uh, German work on sexuality. So it's an English translation of a very technical German work on sexuality. Now, unless you're Zach Lee, you probably aren't spending a bunch of time reading technical Greek, uh, I'm sorry, technical German works. Now, so imagine how long a coin, uh, a term that's coined in this kind of work would have taken uh, to enter into popular usage to the degree necessary to be actually used in a Bible translation. But again, failure to use a term doesn't mean failure to address a topic like Jesus and idols. In other words, it doesn't matter if the words were there. The word didn't even exist much before that, but rather if the concept was there, whether explicitly or implicitly, and as we have seen, it uh, certainly was. Okay, so that's what uh, the Scripture says about the topic that's dealing with some of the most common uh, objections that you might deal with uh, as you interact with others who have questions about what the Bible says about the particular topic. I want to spend the last couple of minutes just giving kind of a pastoral word, which is going to be difficult um, to spend a few moments just talking about how do we extend grace and love in this area, and, and it gets really complicated. A lot of it depends on your uh, relationship. Is it your brother? Is it your son? Is it your parents? Is it your friend? Is it your coworker? Is it someone within the church? That's a, a big part of the, uh, the conversation. Does the person that you're ministering to identify as a Christian or not? Paul makes very clear 
uh, in 1 Corinthians that uh, how we treat those inside the church differs from how we treat those outside the church. We just can't create one rule uh, except the rule that we should speak the truth in, uh, in love. And I think uh, it's fairly clear that the Western church has dropped the ball on speaking the truth uh, in love. Uh, we've not always been a bastion of love as much as we have tried to bash people uh, with uh, the truth. And so, as a result of that, I think uh, many that uh, are within the church or outside of the church um, and identify with this struggle feel only judgment and condemnation. I mean, just thinking about how many people with this struggle have only seen a non-Christian witness masquerading as Christianity as with those so-called churches that picket funerals with signs saying God hates homosexuality or homosexuals or even worse, language. Or how many have only heard a watered-down version of what the Bible actually says on the topic? Or closer to home, how many of us have friends who have this struggle? Are we personally willing to build a relationship with them, or do we treat them as some sort of communicable disease, like a form of spiritual leprosy? We as believers need to bear in mind that our goal is not to convert anyone from homosexual to heterosexual. Our goal is always to convert from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, which will then begin to transform everything else, including our sexuality. Uh, The church needs to grow in how she ministers to those who identify as lesbian or gay or those who struggle with same-sex attraction, even if they don't choose to identify as homosexual. But... We can't do so. Even as we try to speak the truth, we can't do so, or speak the love, we can't do so in a way that compromises the truth. We've said it before in sermons that, uh, that you can speak truthfully without love, but you can't biblically speak lovingly without truth. And the most loving thing the church can do is speak the truth. Those who would uh, be willing to water down the Word in order to reach the lost have good intentions. They have good intentions. They desire to minister to others. Their desires are good. Their intentions are good. But it reminds me of a story from 2 Samuel. You know, long before Indiana Jones had found the Ark of the Covenant, it had been lost to the Philistines. And then it was eventually recovered. And eventually, King David sought to bring it back to Jerusalem. And as it was being transported, the oxen began to stumble. And a man named Uzzah reached out to steady the cart. His intentions were good. He desired to protect the ark, to keep it from falling, but he nonetheless failed to heed the word of the Lord that he should not touch the ark and was judged as a result. He thought his good intentions were an exception to God's good intentions and God's holiness and the glory of His word. Likewise, the the desire to minister to those who have this attraction is admirable, but our intentions can't ignore God's Word. And this is where the church in America in particular is caving. Some are willing to disregard what Scripture says because they're genuinely convinced that the Bible doesn't address the issue of modern homosexuality or any of the other host of objections that we uh, discussed this morning. Some are just hurt by past abuses or by a personal struggle. Some have only heard weak arguments on the topic, people who simply quote Leviticus 18 or 20, and they don't give the full range of biblical testimony. And lots have a genuine desire to minister to those with homosexual desires and feel 
that the message this morning puts a stumbling block in its path. So they're willing to downplay or deny or twist what the Bible says. They're willing to uh, to look at that uh, stumbling block as if it's a speed bump and to remove it in order to give people safer passage toward the gospel. So I wanted to end with a powerful word this morning by Rosaria Butterfield, who was a practicing lesbian who taught queer theory and English literature in college. And then she heard the gospel, and she believed the gospel. And so she was asked the question, in light of the way that the church is capitulating, and in particular, one well-known blogger who had written recently that she no longer views homosexual behavior as being incompatible with the gospel. And someone asked Miss Butterfield what her views on that were. As a former lesbian, a professor of queer theory, Uh, who had uh, given up lesbianism for the sake of the gospel. And these were her words, and I want to close uh, with this this morning. She writes, If this were 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved instead of 2016, her, this person who she's responding to, her words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a balm of Gilead. How amazing it would have been to have someone as radiant, knowledgeable, humble, kind, and funny as her saying out loud what my heart was shouting, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline of queer theory and English literature and culture and in my church. My emotional vertigo would find normal once again. Maybe I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after He convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Maybe it would go differently for me than it did for Paul, Daniel, David, and Jeremiah. Maybe Jesus could save me without afflicting me. Maybe the Lord would give uh, to me respectable crosses and manageable thorns. But today I hear her words, words meant to encourage, not discourage, to build up, not tear down, to defend the marginalized, not broker unearned power, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, her words would have put a millstone around my neck. In other words, we must love people enough. These are my words now. In other words, we must love people enough to tell them the truth and continue to seek ways which manifest the full message, not only of God's judgment, but also of grace and mercy and the love of the gospel of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word this morning. We confess, Lord, that we don't know everything that we need to know in regards to how we might engage our community around us, but we know that your word is good, and all you do is good, and you've given us your word that we might flourish, that we might thrive, that we might experience the fullness of joy that can only be experienced in relationship with you. So I pray that you would help us Lord, to help us to see the goodness and grace and glory of your word this morning, to not only see it as true, but to see it as a treasure 
to be embraced and cherished, Lord. And so where our hearts rebel for any reason whatsoever, whether it is out of good intentions to desire to those with this struggle, whether it's because we ourselves have this struggle, whether it's because uh, we, we simply have only interacted with uh, negative abuses of this or whatever it might be, Lord, whatever our reasons for being hesitant toward Your Word, not fully receiving it, Lord, would You grant us the grace of repentance and faith, Lord, that we might rest in You and in Your good commands. We pray these things because You are good and You do good. You're a good Father who's given us the greatest gift in His Son. And so we pray in His name. Amen.